You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On June 26, 1659, a representative from five towns in a province of northern Italy initiated legal proceedings against caterpillars. The local specimens, went the complaint, were trespassing and pilfering from people's gardens and orchards. A summons was issued and five copies made and nailed to trees in forests adjacent to each town. The caterpillars were ordered to appear in court on the 28th of June at a specified hour where they would be assigned legal representation. <laughs> oh my God, I'm speaking that. with Mary Roach. Her new book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. She's the author of Spook, Stiff, Grunt, Packing for Mars. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. This is such a wonderful book, and I want to talk about just the subject of this book because you pick your subjects very, very carefully. It's a process. So talk a little bit about discovering how you're going to write about what you write about. Sure, yeah. Well, I do uh, spend a fair amount of time thrashing around, uh, running into walls, uh, dead ends, changing my mind. It's a, it's, I never have a tidy origin story. People always expect, oh, she must have been attacked by a bear at some point, or perhaps she's always been plagued by rodents or something. People figure there's some personal moment or story that inspires a book. For, but for me, I mean, I, books is what I do for a living, and when I finish one, it's my job to find another. And I, so I head out into the world and kind of uh, look around, which is a fun thing to do, to just have that feeling of, whoops, of the whole world is open to you as a possible book topic. But I am very, uh, very much looking for specific things. Like it has to be something where I can go and spend time in that world, you know, in person. Uh, lots of different, I usually end up going somewhere for most chapters unless they're historical so that has to be there uh, and i like there to be it doesn't have to be science it usually ends up that way um, i'd be open to other types of books i just don't seem to have those goggles you know to find a a single narrative story to tell all the way through a book i'd love to do that but i never i never seem to find a story like that so um, I guess I'm just wired for this kind of book and when I see something that it, it's often a pocket of science that I didn't know existed like human wildlife conflict I didn't know that was a thing who knew who knew <laughs> who knew you know that there are textbooks with that title conferences people whose whole occupations are human wildlife conflict so uh, that that seemed like it might be a fun place to uh, dig around and travel around for a while. You know, one of the things I think that makes your book so delightful is the language you find, make your uh, uh, amazing natural humor, but also the way you find the titles of the books, the titles of the paper, the titles of the people, just the way you look at the English language and say, well, here's a title of the book, you know, 10,000 Ways That Geese <laughs> <laughs> Can Ruin a Golf Course. Or, yeah. you know, it's, so talk about that. That must be, when you're looking in the library, how, or where do you look for these, these source materials? Well, um, they are often things uh, that turn up when I'm, when I'm researching something, they just I, I will naturally stumble onto them. Other times, uh, it's a it's a Google Scholar search or a PubMed search, and I and, but I'm but I'm not you know I'm I'm you can't really look for those. You can just see them when you trip over them. So I and but but there are times for some of my books, like for Bonk, which had to do with a study of sexual physiology. 
I went into the basement of the UCSF Medical School Library, and I, there's a whole wall of the Journal of Sex Research, and I just went through volume by volume, by volume, issue by issue, scanning the table of contents and going like, boring, 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 boring. Oh, hiccups is a potential cure for, no, intractable, wait, 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 no, sexual intercourse as a cure for intractable hiccups. That was in there. So that one I actually, I was looking just for intriguing uh, topics that I might uh, cover in the book and uh, stumbled onto it. But, they, you know, I was looking in that case, but very often I'm, I'm not looking. And I, you just, when you step into these very specific worlds, people have very specific language and very specific papers, and uh, they're very dialed down and they're very, uh, for, for, for an outsider, sometimes very uh, surreal or hilarious. <laughs> well, no, I, I would suggest that Having done this for a while, you're an artist, and it, as much as you might think that it's luck that brings you across these things, it's also a certain skill. I mean, the way you play your research is an instrument, uh, and I think yeah. you really play it well, like a virtuoso, also completely naturally. So uh, in, the, in the opening quote that you read, I mean... That is absolutely one of the most mind-boggling things <laughs> I've ever heard. So talk about just where, I mean, humans and animals have had a, a, apparently a very long history of, of conflicts that demand legal resolution, and that's really weird. It is really weird. That book, uh, that's the, the Caterpillar case is from a book, from 1906, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. And that book is not that obscure in the sense that it's known among uh, animal rights circles. It's, it's, it's out there, but you, you see it referenced from time to time, a couple things in it, but uh, I, don't, I didn't get the sense many people tried to read the whole thing, which I did. <laughs> it's not very readable, I have to say, it's very dense. It's very meandering. The paragraphs are two pages long. But if you do sit down to read it, and the only reason that you would is if you were thinking of writing a book on this topic, uh, it's this wealth of bizarre information. I mean, bears excommunicated from the church and people <laughs> shoving writs of ejectment into the burrows of rodents. What the book doesn't really capture all that well is, is wh why people would have done this. Obviously, they weren't so stupid that they thought the caterpillars would turn up in court. I think it was more um, a way to sh sort of sort of um, show off. Like we are, we the city fathers are uh, so powerful that even nature bends, bends to, to our wishes, and we will resolve this for you, the people. We will set aside an alternate plot of land, which is what they did for the caterpillars. But of course, there was enough legal proceedings that by the time that happened, the caterpillars had pupated. <laughs> and become butterflies and left. So, but everybody, if you think about it, everybody probably walked away from that situation thinking, yeah, that seemed to work out pretty well. Those guys were smart. Uh, so, but, but the, um, the book itself is, uh, is rich with bizarre. I mean, anytime weevils enter the legal system, <laughs> it's like, I get pretty excited. That's just my kind of material so that so finding that book early on mm -hmm. was kind of what cemented the idea mm -hmm. and the, the the idea of looking at these things as actual crimes because of course animals don't commit crimes they follow their instincts so but but looking at it that way i i do have to um attribute that to that finding that book and <clears throat> and spending the time time to read it i mean i kept i kept putting it off it's like i gotta read that really dense weird book but once i did uh it it, it did pay off <laughs> it's like learning to play the really weird and dense uh yeah, violin love, part <laughs> i love i love what you said about research being an instrument because it is you know i i people ask about writing and how how do you do what you do and it's it's for me not really about 
well, it is about writing, but without the, the pile of stuff that I've gathered, mm-hmm. I can't build something funny, surprising, weird, whatever it is that I do. I'm completely dependent. I need that instrument, which is the pile of crap that I've <laughs> gathered over the course of my research. And, and uh, yeah, how it, it's, it's almost, or like architecture, how are, how are you able to build something from this pile of sticks? Yeah. You're, you're like a, somebody who samples a bunch of random sounds and then says, how can I put these together? And yeah. comes out with an orchestra. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's kind of like that. It is, it's very much like that. It's like, here's what I have. I don't have an agenda when I start a book. I don't mm-hmm. ever think, well, I'll start by talking about this and then I'll move here because I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to find <laughs> till I get out into the world. So I don't, I don't even have a clue where the book is going, even when I'm halfway into it. I have no idea. It's just it's like I'm going to see what I can build from what I find. Well, that, that makes you a, an excellent improviser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, it, um, a, a chapter will change. I mean, halfway through writing it, I'll realize this is really what this chapter is about. And I, I'll go somewhere with an idea of what my chapter is going to be. You know, mm-hmm. I'll go and do the research. And, 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 but I don't ever have a list of specific questions because until I get there, I don't know what the right questions are. Mm. So I want to just spend time with this person or people and absorb as much as I can and let them sort of direct me to the most interesting or most important things. And, and then come home and um, kind of internalize all that and then spit it out in some way. Oh, you do a fabulous job. And I think one of the things I really like about this book is it, it's, it's funny, it's sunny. It's a, a book that I think anybody could read right now at a time when, you know, everything is just, you know, the world is covered with fault lines. This is a book that every human being who reads could enjoy. <laughs> and I think that that's a really hard thing to write. It's a great accomplishment. Congratulations. It's oh, it's seriously, it's important that, yeah, you know, you. we can be united by a <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, yeah, thank you. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if people who are uh, in agriculture who are vexed by, I mean, people, like big agriculture, mm. not small organic, but... I don't know if how they would, uh, if, if, you know, I think about this with my books, like the military, like Grunt, mm-hmm. I thought about, do people who have deployed in the military, would they read this book and think, oh, sh- she's an outsider, what does she know? You know, that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard from people um, in agriculture who have read the book who might think, you have no idea what it's like. You know, you, you just don't know what you're talking about. I live this and you step in, like that kind of thing. I mean, I like to, you know, I, I make sure that I have the facts right, mm-hmm. but I can never know what the experience of living that life, that world is. So I, it would, I don't know if everybody, if it would unite them. But thank you for saying that. It's lovely to hear. Well, I think too that one of the things I love is that you take the process of science and bring it right up to the absurdity of human culture. Yes. And that's exactly where you meet in that space. They never quite come together. Yes. But Mary Roach stands firm between them and looks at them both and says, over here, human culture is, you know, signing writs to beetles. Over here, the beetles are turning into butterflies. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a, a really interesting talent. And also, these books are very much about science. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things I love is that you, as you say, you get all the facts right, including the facts about our completely absurd reactions <laughs> to, to, to science. So I, I think one of the things that... Uh, that I, I love about this book is, you know, the the um the conflict bears. You there are so many interesting like little phrases you come up you find like conflict bears. So talk about um this which is the you know starts your book. Uh bears are, are 
um, scary things. And if you want to hear something scary, here's something. Uh, a fellow named Terry Biston lives, or I think close, not too far from here, is a science fiction writer. He wrote a, a collection of stories, and he gave it the title. The title story was, I think, one of the most terrifying titles I've ever heard. It's called Bears Discover Fire. <laughs> Wow, bears discover fire. Huh, well, the bears mostly are, are, are eating nuts and berries and grasses, so... Yeah, they don't roast they, their... They're not... Well, I guess... They might, they might yeah, like cooked salmon, They might huh? like cooked salmon, yes, yes, yeah. cooked salmon, yeah. Bears discover fire, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, my impression of bears is that they're so kind of affable and laid back. Obviously, when they get pissed, mm. it's another matter. Uh, if they feel threatened and they're angry or afraid, then all bets are off. But mm. for the most part, they just kind of seem... <laughs> they're just kind of... They're kind of like big raccoons in a way. You know, mm. they're very smart. They get what they're after. So I, the bear... Like bears with fire, I think they kind of be like, let's throw some marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> now, so... But... Uh, we have a, a lot of uh, bear incidents, and so talk about um, going to Aspen, and there's all sorts of, one of the things you do, you're really good at is discovering like the bureaucratic response to scientific problems that you yeah. know, seems somewhat absurd. <laughs> so talk about you know, yeah. our, our conflicts with bears. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, um, the, bureau the bureaucracy is entertaining in that um well the one the one that comes to mind is not so much bears although the bear the bears thing it, it came down to yeah well there are there are laws and there are fines but there's no personnel to to patrol and look for the infringe you know the people who've broken this law and and to write the tickets there's no enforcement so you know writing writing a law that says you have to have any bear attractant you know in a uh, bear-resistant garbage container. You know, it's, it, you're not done. At the, you're not done. You just you're just getting started, because you've got the waste management people to deal with. You've got uh, the fact that Aspen, Colorado, is a resort vacation town. People coming in from out of town. You can't ticket those people. They don't care about bears. They don't know from bears. They don't bother to lock the container. They're gone by the time you would ever write them a ticket. So. To, to have a law that says you have to lock have to have this container to lock your compost uh, is is just the beginning so and people people don't realize that I think they think oh well this will be easy to fix yeah you know and in in, in India the you know, oh, the, India. The, with the macaques, which cause a lot of oh my God, mischief get terrifying. up to a lot of mischief in in New Delhi in particular. Um, and there's the situation where uh, the head of the veterinary department at the Delhi South Delhi Municipal Corporation, which is kind of the bureaucratic heart of Delhi, um, this guy, uh, his feeling is, these are wild animals. This is not my job. You need to talk to Dr. Ishwar Singh of the Forest Department. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dr. Ishwar Singh of the Forest Department is saying, these are no longer wild animals. They're in a city. They're not my job. <laughs> So <laughs> nothing gets done. And these two go back and forth, these two departments saying, this is not, not, my, not my job. So, and that's just the beginning of it. So, Well, I think too, I mean, this is uh, now as we're pushing, as humans are becoming more populous and pushing further away from the, the cities, the opportunities and, and interests of animals to break into our habitats is, you know, uh, greater. I can't imagine anything worse than having monkeys or bears break into your house. And I never even thought about that, you know, home <laughs> invasion and burglaries. There's, you know, kind of different right. shades of this. Right, right, right. Um, uh, yeah, and, and for people that it's happened to, it's just very, uh, especially when it isn't clear why they've done it. I mean, with bears, they're going straight to the refrigerator. That's what they're, they're and, and amazingly, often... Don't even knock anything over on the way. They just kind of lumber up the stairs, go to the refrigerator, make a mess, and leave. Uh, and that is, people respond to it in two ways. One, they're terrified, or they're kind of nonchalant because it happens all the time. 
Uh, mm. in, in Pitkin County, which is where Aspen is, between the time bears came out of hibernation and the time in the spring, and the time when I visited in late summer, 421 calls about bears damaging property looking for food. So it's incredibly common, and I think uh, people are um, have come to see them as just kind of big, bumbling, furry refrigerator raiders. <laughs> um, but the the monkeys, because they sometimes, it isn't clear what they're after. Uh, mm. The researcher who I traveled with in India described one time this monkey came in through the back door of their apartment, went into the kitchen, kitchen and picked up the induction cooker and threw it on the floor and left. <laughs> and he's like, there is, they live to harass, they are happiest when they harass us. You know, he went into this whole thing of, just this rant, and of course his, his wife, who's also a wildlife biologist, was, was saying, well, she had been trying to make the point that, well, they're rewarded, they grab a cell phone because people know to give them fruit to get the cell phone back, so we are rewarding the behavior. It is not that they're malicious, spiteful assholes, it's because, and he's like, and he told the, that story of the induction cooker, and then he said, and then he, also, then he goes, and Shweta, remember in the garden, they took those flower parts and turned them upside down just to harass us. <laughs> he was like, he felt that those monkeys just were doing it to nettle him specifically. I, and I don't know why the monkeys do that. I think the monkeys have a, a sense of mischief, I guess. Now, not all animals are, are just mischievous. Some of them actually enjoy hunting us and, and eating us. Um, Talk about uh, leopards. I, yeah. I, I always, you know, there's an old movie uh, with uh, Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer about the famous man-eating tigers. Uh -huh, but yeah. I, you yeah. tell us that the leopards are far more hungrier for us than, than tigers are. Well, in one region of India, yeah. I mean, not in um, further south, uh, uh, not up in the, the middle Himalaya is where this happens. It's a very specific part of India, uh, and that's uh, where that man-eating leopard of Rudra Prayag, that book by Jim Corbett, who hunted that animal down, uh, that's where these animals are. Further south, the leopards, there are, people get injured by leopards, but it's more of a defensive attack, like the person surprised them, the leopard tries to run away, you know, there may be a scuffle, the person is scratched, but they're, uh, they're fine. They're not being stalked. It's not an. In, they're not being killed with intent, mm. and and that does happen in this region of India with surprising regularity. A few people every year in some of these communities uh, are preyed upon. Often uh, small children, because of course children are smaller. I mean that's the same with alligators. It's a. It's rare for a mm. full adult to be <clears throat> treated as prey, but every now and then um, an alligator will take a you know a pet or a small child because it's it's an easier target. But the leopards, um, yeah, the leopards do this. And I traveled with a um, researcher from the Wildlife Institute of India who is, uh, spends his time going village to village and talking to people about how to be safer. I mean, you can't talk to the leopards. You can't <laughs> say, you know, we'd like to encourage you to uh, feed on something different. We'd like to pay you to stop killing people. What, what can you do? So uh, crime prevention is always the best strategy for these things. So uh, he talks to them about, you know, don't, don't let your children walk home from school because it's dusk then and that's the worst time. A alone, have them walk in big groups. Um, he tries to set up leopard response teams. So when there is a leopard in the scene in the area, they, um, they know what to do and how to you know, how to talk to people. Um, but, in, but in fact, what the leopard response teams are often doing is um, trying to f encourage people to uh, do things to, to make themselves safer, but all, and also to, to not to just go and, and hunt, trap the animal and burn it, kill it. So they're in, in some ways managing the people more than the leopards. Well, in both India and America, there's kind of like a forensic now DNA test to find out who who done the deed if yeah. if somebody attacks. And there's like I guess grizzlies is it four attacks before they put them down or and, and there's a whole like I mean yeah, a, a cultural feeling about yeah. this because nobody wants to 
a bear down or, or probably a, a leopard either. Right. Well, in India, there's a um, India culturally has a, a more tolerance and reverence for wildlife in general, and I, um, in particular, animals like uh, monkeys and elephants because they are gods. Hanuman, the monkey god, and Ganesh, the elephant god. So there's a a, a reverence kind of just culturally built in to anybody who was raised in that faith. Uh, and that, uh, I think, has led to that feeling of, of let's not be so hasty. The leopards, are, um, if when someone is killed, it, it, the killing is treated differently if it's defensive or versus predatory. Right. So in other words, it's like <laughs> manslaughter versus murder. Exactly. Was there, was there criminal intent? Or did this just happen because... The person scared the leopard. The leopard thought it was threatened, and then this happened. So, and they're given a couple. Uh, I forget if it's. I think it's three strikes. Uh, you know, it's a little squishy. Uh, but generally, generally they want to establish that there's a pattern here. That this animal is regularly preying on li- livestock, people's livestock, or people themselves. So, and in that case, the community can bring in a hunter or the the. Uh, Forest Department will assign someone. So, that, but it, but here in here and in Canada, when an animal harms a person, it is killed. That that's just it's a, considered a threat to public safety. Mm. And um, if it's uh, caught, and especially in the case of a person being killed, they'll try to establish DNA linkage between the the victim and the animal. And uh, and if they and if the DNA doesn't match, then the suspect is released. That, that I found that kind of amazing. Yeah, it's nice to know. Really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, assuming that they do follow through and and do that. Um, that that was the case up in Canada. A woman was killed in out uh, in her yard. It's in a rural. I forget where it was. Had one of those Siskiyut or something. One of those names that I can't keep in my head. But there's a lot of bears right around where she lived. She lived in a um, rural area, and they set trap set a trap on her property right afterwards. And the first two bears that were captured, the DNA didn't match, and they were released. And the, but the third bear was the match. And there was that many bears prowling around. This, I imagine she must have had some unsecured food or something, or was feeding them. I'm not sure. That's a lot of a lot of bears. But uh, it's Canada. There's a lot of bears. Great title for a mystery, The Third Bear. The Third Bear, yes. You mentioned the word squishy. Uh, this brings to mind the other uh, wildlife menace in India, the elephant. Oh, the elephant, yes. Squishy, yes. Okay, got it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, squishy, yeah. Uh, don't want to be stepped on. It is an effective means of, of um, annihilating a someone mm. to step on them although they have other things that they can do like pull off limbs um they uh, <laughs> just by the way uh yeah elephants nice to know nice to know well they that's kind of how they they're you know they strip a branch of leaves they kind of like wrap their trunk around and pull off okay pull off the the stuff they can eat so that's kind of their you know they secure the tree with one foot and then pull off the leaves with the other foot so they it's kind of easy to train them to do that to a person Mm. and they were used in executions back in the day well one of the things this book makes is that's really fascinating about this book is the history of our relations to animals particularly in the u.s i mean conservation when we think of conservation now we think oh they're all we're taking care of all the pretty trees and all the bears we'll just pet them it didn't always mean that did it no it didn't what did not always mean that conservation uh started out conserving wildlife conservation of wildlife started out as um very wealthy people who like to hunt decided to conserve the animals that they wanted to kill they wanted to hunt, so they the uh, and and the wilderness in which those animals existed. There was a, a sense that everything was being turned into agricultural towns, and we we need to protect these wildernesses where we can go and hunt <laughs> and kill these animals. There, there was this. There's a chapter in the book that deals with well, it deals with a bunch of things, but one of them is 
this practice in the early part of the last century called crow bombing. And crow oh bombing was really what it, what it sounds like. It was people who had the word conservation in their job titles uh, going in to roosts where crows uh, spend the night. And then the crows are out doing their thing during the day. And while they're out of their homes, the, uh, these officials would go in and they'd string up dynamite. And then when the crows had all settled in for the night, they would set it off. Uh, and this... First of all, first of all, it doesn't it doesn't really work? The populations are so large that you can't really make a dent in it. But but the reason that they were doing this was that there was a belief that the crows were eating so many duck eggs that the hunters wouldn't have enough ducks to hunt. So the wildlife conservation people, wanting to conserve the ducks so they could shoot them, dynamited the crows. And such is the legacy of wildlife conservation. And, in America. Uh, there's been a, a, a lot of bird bombing. There's a, a lot of... They, they seem to, to like that, that solution for a while. <laughs> yeah, birds... Uh, birds were part of... Uh, uh, yeah, bombing. Uh, the, the albatross of Midway Island. Oh, my God, the goonie birds. The they, goonie birds put up with a lot of harassment from the U.S. Navy. And they um, couldn't never really figure it out. No, the goonie birds... Pretty, well, they, pers- they prevailed. Yeah. Uh, the Navy is gone from Midway Island. It's now a bird refuge. So the, in the long run, the albatross had their way. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that you talked about, uh, you talked about the famous leopard, leopard hunter, and this is a kind of personality type who shows up a few times in your book, like the guy, and it's always a guy, <laughs> who, who figures out he's going to like single-handedly take out the dangerous members of the species that threaten us. Yeah. Uh, so talk about those guys, and, and you know they're really not all that effective, except in their own minds. Well, yeah the um, the the National Wildlife Research Center at one point actually did did studies on crow bombing, and not only did it not lower the amount of agricultural damage, because that was another reason, in addition to the duck eggs, it didn't lower the amount of agricultural damage, it didn't have anything to do with the duck population, and it didn't even affect the population numbers for the crows. It it made a dent, a a small dent. So it's not only really cruel, but utterly ineffective. And this is coming from the National Wildlife Research Center, which is part of the USDA, which they are not defenders of crows and blackbirds at all. So the fact that they did this work and they determined, you know what, killing large numbers of these creatures doesn't help. It doesn't help us. doesn't help farmers. It's not the way to go. There's better ways to do that. Well, as you point out in the book, it depresses the population, which makes them eat which reduces the scarcity of the food, which increases the amount of the, the mating and the reproduction. Right. Uh, this is what happens with coyotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a term, compensatory reproduction, which is when, when, when the circumstances are good and food is plentiful and there's enough space for lots of animals, um, they have, depending on the species, uh, bigger broods, and or shorter gestation periods. So they, they, they take advantage of the good circumstances. If there's more food available, they produce more creatures to take advantage of that food. So uh, nature adapts. So that's another reason that those methods fall short. Yeah. Now, speaking of, of blowing things up, I never knew they blew up trees. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't either. They, they, yeah, and, and, uh, which sounds terrible, but it's actually a kind of a nice story. Um, these are danger trees. Danger trees, yes. Uh, danger, danger trees, trees. conflict bears. Yes, the, danger trees. Is, I, lo- I really love that term because just, you don't really imagine a tree being that danger. That be the ne- next book in the series after Three Bears. Yeah, danger <laughs> the trees. third bear. Danger trees or the next James Bond movie. Yes. Um, but the, the, these are they're typically very old trees that have started to uh, they're, they're diseased. They've started to rot internally, and when a tree starts to uh, gets root rot uh, or sometimes top down rot, you don't necessarily see that from the outside. Mm-hmm. And this, the, so the tree's getting soft and spongy, and it, it's it's very um, 
it's more likely to fall. And when it falls, obviously, if it's a, if it's a very old, some of these legacy trees uh, weigh a couple of tons. So if that falls in a nature area where people have come to observe the trees and wander through them and picnic, that's a bad thing. So uh, that's why some of these uh, legacy preserves, like Macmillan Grove up in BC, have uh, danger tree assessors mm -hmm. go through every year and they're looking for signs of decrepitude. And if they find that a tree is too far gone, I mean, he, this one assessor had been monitoring these trees for about 15 years because trees die very slowly. Mm. And so uh, if, it, if it's reached a point where it's a threat to you know, uh, people who might be in the park, if it falls over, you know, if it's near a path, if it's near a structure, um, they'll, do, uh, they'll call in the danger... Danger tree faller blaster, uh, faller being a term for logger up there. They're called fallers. One guy had a card that said falling supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll call in somebody to, uh, they don't cut the tree down uh, for, t for a couple of reasons. One, they, they want to leave this beautiful, you know, it's a they're very tall tree. So what they do is they blow off the top. Mm -hmm. they, this guy climbs up and, and bores couple holes, puts dynamite in, blows off the top third. So now it's more stable. It's lighter. It's not as likely to sway in the breeze in a storm. Uh, it's, it, it buys them some years to still have this beautiful tree, but it's now safer. And it's also, uh, when they blow off the top, uh, it, it starts to kind of decay from the top down and it becomes real estate for animals to live in oh right bear dens <clears throat> so yeah yeah and and raptors can perch and it, a number of uh, cavity dwelling bird species like um, blasted tops as they're called blasted tops so it <laughs> danger trees become wildlife trees also that's another category wildlife tree you know speaking to the way this book is written your prose has just become so fine and <laughs> so funny and so clever. And one of the things I think you do really well is you, it's constant. All of the prose is, has this sense of humor and, and your voice behind it. We really get the sense of, of Mary Roach, who sounds like you'd be a hood at a party, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so talk, talk about creating that voice and, you know, unifying it in book with all the language, like for this book, all the language and, and the jokes, you know, are, come from, you know, the, the animal world. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think that's something I learned from by osmosis from reading authors like uh, Bill Bryson is one who, um, even when he's explaining something fairly dry, he still sounds like himself, which mm -hmm. is hard to do when, when you're explaining science. And sometimes you see this, uh, in a book where somebody isn't really a science writer and they don't really want to do the science and so they'll just throw in a quote from the scientist like I'm going to let him do it mm -hmm. or or they they uh, they become sort of dry and technical mm -hmm. and they, they use sort of the words that are in the journal paper which the reader might not understand so they're um, it's it's easy to be lazy that way and because um, the science is presented to you often in a sciencey way mm. so you as the writer uh if you're writing for a general audience have to um get it across in a way that feels like how you would say it how mm -hmm. you would explain it and you that means you have to understand it first you have to like take it in digest it and then spit it out in a different form so and that's not not i mean for example in in the book there's a section on gene drives genetic modification and gene drives and another technique that's kind of like far into the future birth control uh, for, in, for invasive species. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't have a background in genetics and it took me a while to figure out how to say, you know, keep the tone going, not, not have this patch of dry blah science. You know? Mary Roach, the literary seagull. <laughs> yeah. Se seagulls yes. of course play, play a part in this book. Um, uh, I come from a place where seagulls uh, and their interactions with humanity permeated mankind in a way that everybody recognizes. Where I live is Rio del Mar. Uh -huh. Back in the 50s, the seagulls got themselves, ate a bunch of uh, red tide 
animals. And they went kind of crazy and they started attacking people. And a local guy who lived up in Scotts Valley by the name of Alfred Hitchcock said, boy, I'm going to make a movie about that. Really? Is that what happened behind? Yeah. Oh, huh. And I'm assuming the movie was a vast exaggeration. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it was like a few individual gulls. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just, you know, I also, you know, can, they lose, they lost their fear and they would kind of wander around oh. drunken. You know, it's like imagine a like large a, party like, of drunken seagulls. Right. Like rabbit, like a rabbit animal that you see in daylight when it shouldn't be out during the day. And, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, or, po- or poisoned, or, or rats that have been poisoned. Sometimes you see them wandering around, oh. sick and dazed. I've seen that. Um, yeah, right, so they were poisoned. Is that why? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, there you go. Now, huh. you tell us some wonderful facts about seagulls and uh, how, what they eat and how you find out what they eat. Oh, yeah, that, that was, there was a couple gull researchers in this book who were very funny, uh, Sarah Kruchesny and Julie Carroll Ellis, uh, who I interviewed by Zoom, not because it was during COVID, people think that that's what it was, but just because I, I wasn't, uh, they weren't near a phone. They mm. were, I think they were, I can't remember why we did it on a sort of Zoom call. Um, anyway, they, Julie was talking about how um, a gull, if it feels threatened, will vomit in your direction, and it's called defensive vomiting, which is a term I really love, <laughs> defensive vomiting. And I thought, being a human being, I thought, oh, they do that to disgust the predator, to, to gross them out. She said, no, they're doing it to, to give the predator an alternate food choice. Like, why eat me when you could eat this delightful, already digested pile of glop? But it's useful for gull researchers because it enables them to, to uh, know what the birds have been eating. If you're studying their dietary habits or have reason to want to know what gulls eat, um, there's a wonderful list in the book of all the things that have been vomited at this woman, Julie. Yeah. Now, um, it's not just animals. We talked about trees, but there are other terror. You talk about the terror beings. I did. I did, yeah. Yeah, that's in the book because the partly because well because the title was for a long time the title of this book was animal vegetable criminal. Mm, okay. Uh, and it uh, it was changed because in February Mark Bittman published a book. It was a history of food mm-hmm. called Animal Vegetable Junk, and he is a big enough name New York Times food writer. Oh yeah. Book author that uh, the publisher felt that we shouldn't have a title so close to that that mm. it would seem derivative that people would look it up and think One that that was other. it i guess yeah. so we went back fuzz was the original title i had on the book proposal so uh, so but b- because we it was animal vegetable criminal uh, my editor felt what well, she wrote to me at one point and said mary there's really no, not much vegetable matter in this book i think you need to add more vegetable matter and this was already during covid <laughs> And I was like, come on, it just means nature, you know, animal vegetables, it's just nature, it's like, you need more vegetable matter. So she's like, what about weeds? I was like, weeds, Jill? I don't think so. Uh, so uh, I ended up writing about um, a couple of uh, plants that are quite uh, deadly. Because plants, you know, they can't, uh, they don't have claws and teeth. They can't run away. So uh, they, in order to defend themselves, they have uh, some pretty dastardly poisons. And, and not just rare plants, but uh, in my yard, our yard, mm-hmm. currently or in the past, I found uh, there were, I think, nine different plants that were on the most deadly list. Um, wow, that's... <laughs> it's just, it's a long list. You know, ah. But, you know, you, you're not likely to be chewing on those. And, and I think you probably need to purify the um, the poison, you extract it and purify it to have it be that lethal. And, mm. and nobody but Walter White knows how to do that. Yeah. I think he used lilies of the valley in right. some episode of Breaking Bad. But there are a lot of plants like that where if you are a chemist and you know what to do, you could, uh, you could harvest a pretty nasty uh, uh, toxin, phytotoxin. Now, what were the plants that people used to put into water supplies? 
that will poison the water supply? Oh, oh, well, that is a substance uh, that, that 1080 is the, the chemical. Mm. I forget the name of the actual plant. Oh, that, okay. That, but um, but ten, the, the plant from which 1080 comes, I just have the scientific name in the book and I've forgotten what it is. Um, but that uh, is something that went on to be developed as uh, a pesticide. Mm. But it, 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 people had figured that out. Uh, it was sort of like you go into the enemy tribe's territory and th throw it in the well. I don't know how well that worked. You know, I don't know how. Um... Well, it's interesting that we're using plants to kill animals, eh? Uh, that we, yeah, yeah, right, right, mm. right. Yes, exactly, 1080. Now, um, the most likely place for us to uh, end up... Uh, intersecting with animals is on the road. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I actually had an incident with a deer. I used to work, go to work very early in the morning. I worked in Scotts Valley, and I drove down a road, which was like in kind of on the side of the freeway, but also near a forest, and it was sloped, so the deer would just come down and jump across the road. And I had a deer that jumped, and it manages to just slide across my hood. Oh, jeez. And then just ran away as fast wow. as it could be. It was like, you know, it, Whoa, it just like, was like doing the, the slide. Yeah, like, like Tom Cruise in one of those movies. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was the Tom Cruise of those deer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk about, yeah. you know, uh, roadkill and, and airkill, too, because that, I never thought about that, but, yeah, that's even more deadly in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah, yeah. I have a chapter on what's the jaywalking chapter. It mostly has to do with ungulates, deer, elk, moose, camels too. Um, and, and the the really well, the, well, deer. Uh, because of what you're just describing, deer are far more deadly to humans than bears or cougars. Oh. The number of people killed. I don't have the number right in my head. It's probably in the book. <laughs> I, I did write that book, but it was a while ago. Um, the number of people, and not from, not very often, not from the impact, uh, but from swerving to miss the deer and then hitting a tree or, or going off the road, flipping over. So people are killed in encounters with deer with kind of alarming regularity. Um, and then if you look at a taller animal, like an elk or a moose or a camel, because the car is hitting them at the leg level, the whole torso and the head cartwheels over, comes down, and uh, crashes through the windshield and even the roof, and a lot of um, necks are broken. People's mm. necks, not the animal. Possibly the animal. Uh, so people end up... Uh, there's a paper on uh, camel hits in Saudi Arabia, written by a, a Saudi doctor, uh, and I forget the percentage of people who ended up um, paralyzed or partially paralyzed because of hitting a camel, and it's it's, you definitely don't want to hit a camel. I would think on a on a Saudi highway with if there's just sand on either side, definitely <laughs> swerve. <laughs> yeah, you talk about uh, the devices that they've tried to get to convince deer not to cross. The, the, yeah, the road. Whole, yeah. I, I, I like I like the deer tails on on the white circles. Oh, the deer tail. Yeah, what are they? Oh, the white. Well, there's a couple. Yeah, there's. Somebody was um, trying to test a product that was a reflector that would sort of reflect the headlights off, you know, to the, to the woods so that the deer would have a sense that, oh, hey, tra traffic is coming. But the, the control was these same devices, but with a white piece of white canvas wrapped around it. So it wasn't reflecting. That was the control. But uh -huh. the control seemed to work better. And somebody theorized, well, maybe that's because it looks like a white tail, and that is how deer warn each other. Oh, danger. They flash their... I forget what it's called, but mm. it, uh, it's in the book. They, but they kind of flash the white. And so somebody thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe we should put um, signs... We should make wooden cutouts of deer asses with the tail up. <laughs> so there's this... I forget where this happened. It was a long time ago, but they... They put up, they built these card plywood cutouts of deer butts with the tail flashing <laughs> to try to keep the deer away from the highways. And uh, it did not, it did not work. I think yeah. they even in some cases nailed deer, actual tails. 
<laughs> in flashing position yeah to the top and um yeah it's just you know uh i i think the one of the things i i really love about, about your books is uh when you start getting into the papers and there's some just you do some great quotes of from interviews and films you watched. I mean, <laughs> the, yeah. the, it seems like it must be oh, yeah. really fun to watch some of those old films. Oh, the Albatross one, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called The Second Battle for Midway, I think, is the title of that. And it's one of those black and white film strips with the guy with the pointer <laughs> and a lot of graphs. And he's very serious about the dangers of Albatross. He's like, I wouldn't want to be the one that has to tell some airman's mom or sweetheart, that they were killed by this. And then he picks up a picture of an albatross, just sort of sitting there like, hello. Oh, my God, that was a hilarious film strip. Uh, yeah. The Vatican has a, has a history with, with animal conflict, doesn't it? And this is, yeah. like much of this book, something I never knew. Well, the Vatican has, uh, a, a Vatican's a very small uh, place without a lot of, uh, well, they actually have a big park there, but but the Vatican's problem uh, was gulls, and the gulls in particular would um, vandalize the Easter floral display, among other things that they did. But the the, uh, the this is a massive floral display that's set up before the Pope comes out on the balcony above St. Peter's Square to say Mass on Easter. Uh, the gulls came in at around three, four in the morning, and strew things around and and didn't eat anything uh were just apparently having fun or curious or thought maybe there was food underneath i don't know nobody's nobody could interview them so nobody knows why they did that but the florists were pretty upset so i was there the following easter uh or the actually two easters passed where they had a laser scarecrow set up so it's a it's a chapter about um Bird scaring, the ancient art of bird scaring. The new book by Mary Roach is Buzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Thank you for joining me, Mary. And I look forward to the next time you pick up your research and play it <laughs> like a violin. Well, me too. Me too. Thanks, Rick. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.